Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Battlefield Show. I am Scott Gibson your commander-in-chief, guiding you through the battlefield of life. You know what you're here for. No more messing about. Stick the tape in. Hit the track. Onwards! Episode 32, 32, 3, 2, 32 of the Battlefield Show. How the fuck have you been since the last time we spoke? The world is on fire, statues coming down, but we are here for your daily dose of the Battlefield Show. Ba-da-ba-da-ba. And then just open fire. <laughs> oh, no. A wall of Nazis, you know, and slave traders. Anyway, um, how have you been? Welcome to what is uh, the podcast, The Battlefield Show, or as I now like to look at it, a weekly uh, diary of my slow but steady decline into complete mental breakdown. Huh? Never in my life have I ever wished I lived in New Zealand. Not once. Not even in my rugger days with the boys, eh, flicking towels on each other's bottoms and playing with our testicles in the shower together. Never, uh, even then, at the at the peak of the rugger, you know, mixing with the elite, the hoi polloi, eh? Going to Scotland games on free tickets, you know, playing district level, international fucking trials. Even then, I never thought, 
God, I wish I lived in New Zealand. And then you turn the news on. And you see that not only, not only have they lifted lockdown, not only, not only have they said, hi, see the virus, it's killing every cunt. Disney fucking exist here anymore. This virus, it don't live here anymore. COVID don't live here anymore. So, the Kiwis are out. Eh? Strutting. Strutting up and down the strasses of Kiwi Town, Wellington. And uh, the other place, eating their McDonald's in the in the fried spam, and pubs, eh? And fucking pubs, let that sink in. They're in pubs, going to work, living life. While we in Bonnie Scotland still remain not only locked down but gripped by fear, fake news, and fucking ignorance. It's it's the trifecta of Bob Baggery. Fear, fake news, and ignorance. It has us in its grasp. A death roll dragging us down to the fucking insanity posts of Twitter. This is it, man. This is what we've what we've become. Pulling down statues of old slave traders, stomping on his head like it's Saddam Hussein, pushing into the water. What about the ducks? What about the ducks? Some poor ducks fucked off for the day, got it, shot them, you know? Sees everybody running the run the docks going, Oh I'm no I'm no wanting this man. Eh? I got enough hassle off the polis as it is. I'm fucking off for the day. Comes back to see his house. What? What's happened to my house? There's a fucking statue lying in the duck's house. You know? And then you try and you try and say, hey, see if I'm being honest with you? I couldn't give a fuck. You know, I don't I don't care. That's the thing. There is not there is not a statue on the planet. That, well, as I, as I was about to finish that sentence, the voice in my head went, I'm going to stop you there, big man. I was about to say that the uh, there is not a statue on the planet that I couldn't care less if it was flung into the sea or no. But th- the, the truth is, um, if anybody flung uh, the Duke of Wellington in Glasgow with the coordinate seed into the water, then I would fucking absolutely march upon Westminster. i tell you that for nothing. Uh, right, what was this fucking bastard's name? Edward Colston. Let's Google this cunt. It wasn't that long ago, actually. Um, before uh, the the Black Lives Matter movement and protest kicked off, um, th- there was a, a, an article in, in the news um, that I remember seeing that I believe there is a there is a hall or or a theatre or some uh, space within Bristol. Uh, Named after Edward Colston, and I think there was a there was a, a move then for it to have its name changed, you know. And um, the thing is with, with this stuff, right? 
I find that most of us, normal people, and I use this term a lot, normal people, right? The 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 uh, the circle that is classed as a normal person is becoming smaller. I'll tell you that much. I, I couldn't give a fuck. I couldn't care. I could. I generally could not care. There is so many more things happening um, right now in this world. I couldn't give a fuck about a statue, the name of a building, Madeline McCann. I couldn't give a flying fuck about any of it. You know, it's just a distraction. That's all it is. There are so many more important things in my life right now. You know? Got a loaf of bread in there. Got a loaf of bread in the, in the, in the kitchen, right? Yesterday I had to go to the shops and I stupidly bought two nans and another loaf because I never I, I forgot that we had a loaf. I'm 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 swamped in bread. Swamped. You know? And now I'm thinking, how am I gonna batter through two loaves of bread? In, in this short period of time, do I freeze one? You know, but bread never tastes as good once it's in the freezer. That is concerning me more than a fucking statue of an old slave trader getting put into the water, right? No, get him in the fucking water. Who cares? All these people are going like, you know, they've got, they've got to reteach history. That's what they've got to do. It wasn't all bad, you know? It wasn't all bad. I mean, now that they're taking down that man's statue, that's like saying, fucking, hey, Savile used to run marathons. That's not that bad. But he also used to fucking bugger dead children. You know, there's, there's got to be a balance here. So the stat, if you didn't see it, again, I keep seeing things like this, if you didn't see it, are you living in a hole? There is a statue in Bristol of a, a gentleman called Edward Colston. Um, that was dragged down like like scenes from a fucking computer game. Eh? The hippies got a bit of rope and they fucking dragged the bastard off his plinth, dragged him through the streets and then pushed him out of the water at the docks. Um, now let's see what it says here about, about this fucker. Edward Colston. Um... Come on, you fuck. Edward Colston, uh, born 1636. He's an old guy. Uh, died 1721. An English merchant, slave trader, Tory member. Oh, get him in the water. Get him in the fucking water. Tory member of parliament, dirty bastard, and a philanthropist. Born in Bristol to a family of merchants that lived in the city since 1340s. Uh, he became a merchant, initially trading in wine, fruits and cloth before he moved on to slaves. Eh? Should have stuck with the wine, Eddie boy. Uh, mainly for exports from Spain, Portugal and other European ports. In 1680, he became heavily involved in the slave trade through his membership of the Royal African Company. What a fucking... Royal as well. Eh? Royal. Lizzie, hand over your son, uh, which held a monopoly on the British trade in African slaves. He became deputy governor of the highest office of the company in 1689. It is uncertain exactly how much of his wealth stemmed from the slave trade. Fucking oh yeah, right? I'll tell you how much his wealth stemmed for, for selling slaves. Hunters. The boy's family has been trading in, according to this, 
fruits, cloth, and wine. And he dumps that to fucking trade people. Colston uses wealth to support uh, schools, hospitals, almhouses, and churches in Bristol, London, and elsewhere. Well, in Scotland, but so fuck him. Get him in the water. His name is commemorated by several Bristol landmarks, street schools, and the Colston Bun. Charitable foundations inspired by one uh, he founded still survive. Fucking dirty bastard, man. Um, here's the thing, and I think this is the point I'm trying to make. If somebody wants to take a statue of Edward Colston uh, and drag it down and fuck it in the water, I don't care. I generally don't care. If somebody wants to drag down a, a statue uh Churchill and drag that out and stick that in the water, again, I couldn't get a flight fuck. Um, the the argument that's been put forward about re-education and what we teach in schools um, <coughs> is, a, is one that needs to be addressed. I can remember being in school, uh, as I'm sure most of you did, and when you did history, you learned about the Germans, right? And the Nazis. Who fucking cared? I can remember being in history class and being taught about the Germans and, and thinking to myself, why? Why are we learning about the Germans? I, I mean... There are so many more interesting things in history to be taught in school other than the fucking Germans in World War Two. And I, I never ever understood that. And uh, now the argument now is to talk about the history that Britain has had in the slave trade, right? And I I can see, I can see the arguments. I, I think that it is a, I think it's something that we should all know more about. But I think we've got to be very careful just now. And it, again, it's one of these things where some people feel as if you can't speak up. But hey, I've been cancelled, man. Can't cancel me twice. I think we've got to be careful to know that we we cannot just make every single thing from now until the end of time. Uh, an issue of race or, or an issue of black history I'm not saying it's not important of course it is and I am saying that we should be taught more about the history of this country not just the part we played in the slave trade but also the part we played in colonialism, everything, parts of what, what we did to people in India in Pakistan you know, parts of Egypt the, the maybe no crimes but certainly what Britain as a country did to the rest of the world back in its heard year we should be taught about it we should also be taught in schools about Highland clearances for example right let's fucking kick that let's get out of there Highland Highland clearances I think this is a subject that, or a, or a part of history that should be taught in every school in Scotland. That there isn't that no no child that grows up in Scotland is educated in Scotland should leave higher education without knowing what the Highland clearances were and what happened. Everyone should know that. Everyone should know parts of their history that has shaped their country. We should know about the slave trade. We should be taught those things. We should know 
how much of a part we played in what our part was. We should know that. Of course we should. But it's also important to remember that we can't begin to shape every conversation around race going forward. Right now, it is still in our minds. It's still strong. And change has to happen. And change will happen. There's no way that... There's no way it's going to let up this time. And it shouldn't. Change will happen. But we can't... I don't think we can make every conversation about race at this point. Highland clearances, man. This is this is again something that I... I think I only really heard about it through films. I don't ever remember it being discussed in school. Ever. Not once. Um... The Highland Clearances uh, were the evictions of a significant... I love the way this is written here. A significant number of tenants in the Scottish Highlands and Islands, mostly in the period of 1750-1860. Again, rich, bastard English landowners. In the first phase, clearances resulted from agricultural improvement, driven by the need for landlords to increase their income. Many landlords having crippling debts, with bankruptcy playing a large part in the history. The involved, this involved the enclosure of the open fields managed on the run-rig system and the shared grazing, especially in the north and west of the region. They are usually replaced with large-scale pastoral farms stocked with sheep on which much higher rents were paid. With the displaced tenants getting alternative, alternative tenancies in newly created crofting communities, when they were expected to be employed in industries such as fishing, quarrying and keep industry, kelp industry. The reduction in status from farmer to crofter was one of the causes of resentment from these changes. Yeah. I'm a farmer, John. I've always been a farmer. You're a crofter now, Dougal. Never be a crofter. Uh, the second phase of the Highland Creances involved overcrowded crofting communities on the first phase that had lost the means of support themselves through famine and or collapse of industry they had relied on as well as the continued population growth. Dirty bastards, man. Um, agriculture in the Highlands has always been marginal with famine and recurrent risk for pre-clearance communities. Nevertheless, populations level increased steadily through the 18th and 19th centuries. It's because the Roshagan. There's nothing else to do in the Highlands, right? You fucking look after the croft, look after the sheep, and pump. That's it. That's why the population goes. They increased and continued through nearly all of the time of the clearances, peaking in 1851 at around 300,000. Immigration was part of Highland history before and during the clearances and reached its highest level after them. During the first phase of the clearances, Emigration could be considered a form of resistance to the law status being imposed by landlords through social engineering. Another a part of Scotland's history, you know, that isn't taught in schools. But instead, we all know that fucking Goebbels did that, and Hitler did this, and the Nazis done that, and they wore a Hugo Boss suit. You know? Right. Let's get back on track here. I'm, I'm, I'm losing myself. Um, at the weekend, I went to the Black Lives Matter uh, rally, stroke protest in Edinburgh at Holyrood Park. Um, the most middle-class and civil protest I've ever been in my life. I was told about five or six times by uh, the missus before we went um, how to conduct myself in the face of the police. 
Um, and she kept saying, what do you do if the police ask you to move on? I went, I very politely say, fuck off, cunt. And she said, that's not how you deal with the police. <laughs> so um, we turned up. We got there. We actually got there early. Well, earlier than we thought. And um, it, it, was quite, it was quiet to start with, right? And it never really got going until maybe about one o'clock when we probably should have got there. And uh, thankfully, it had filled up a bit by that point. Now, here's a couple of things I want to say. I have seen... I have seen people commenting on social media about, you know, distancing. Social distancing! The second wave is... The second wave is coming! (laughs) Everybody get out of the water! The second wave is coming! I am amazed, genuinely amazed, at some of the downright retarded comments that people make on social media. As 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 good a platform as Facebook and Twitter is, it is undeniable to argue that it isn't heavily outweighed by fucking morons. Now, here's the thing that gets me about social distancing, right? I've never bought any in the first place. Since day one, I think it's a load of fucking nonsense, right? Now, you can sit there and go, that's a lot of rubbish, big man, scientifically proven. I tell you this, if we have COVID-19, which is a, an airborne virus, and you are urged to wear a, a mask for other people's protection, you, you don't wear a mask for your protection, right? It's for other people's protection, okay? So, what, what I mean by that is, you wear a mask, the mask does not stop the virus getting to you, right? But what the mask does is, if you have the virus, like a little fucking outbreak monkey, it stops the the, the, the spores and the droplets, disgusting, escaping for your nose and mouth, right? So let's just get that out of the way first. A mask protects others from you. It doesn't protect you from others. Alright? So you got your mask on. Then a lot of you fucking daft cunts have got gloves on. Gloves that are designed for medical use, that are designed for single use, that are designed to touch someone, go in the bin and fuck off. Right? That's what medical gloves are designed for. And you dirty ball bags, I've got the one for fucking 10 hours a day. Touching shit, spreading stuff over, touching your face. I've got my gloves, but I'm protected. Then we look at social distancing. So, people have kept their social distance, I believe. Um, then we suddenly started to be released from were allowed a wee one-hour exercise every day. And then you would go out, but joggers would come past you. So you're no social distancing then. People would pass you in the street. You're no social distancing then. But suddenly that didn't matter because it was small numbers. Alright? And maybe you would sneak round to your ma's house or your granny's house, you know, and you'd stand in the front doorstep and you'd be like, oh, I can't come in, gran, because I'm social distancing. But the old fucking bat would shuffle out anyway and she'd stand there. And in your mind, you're going, as long as I don't hug her, everything's cool. But hey, it's all fucking spitting and spatting all over the place. But that's fine. 
because that's family. And as long as nobody sees you, then it is not really technically breaking social distancing, is it? No, that's fine. But there's still an argument for social distancing. And I hear you. I get you. You stand in the queue at Tesco or Morrison's or any other supermarket, possibly Asda. But if you go to Asda, you're a fucking idiot because they pump their chicken full of water and it's disgusting, okay? And you keep to the wee lines, two metres apart, and you get to the front, all eager for your trolley, you know, and you look at the fucking bouncer, eh, who suddenly feels powerful, you know, because he gets to stand there and tell people that he's a key worker, even though he used to work in a nightclub 12 years ago, selling ecstasy for £3, and now because he used to push trolleys and has been put to the front, he thinks he's a key worker. Anyway, he then gives you the nod, as though you've been welcomed into the greatest nightclub ever, and off you go into the supermarket. And do you social distance in? Do you fuck? Do you fuck? You push past people because you're short, man. You know? But what, that suddenly the virus doesn't exist inside Tesco? Doesn't exist inside Morrison's? It doesn't exist inside an Asda? Is that what we have to believe? You go, not long ago, fucking Middle England. Having their street parties. Huh? All of them. Fucking skinheads galore. Out in the street. With their fucking Union Jacks. Gone mad. But that wasn't social. That, that was fine. That was fine. We didn't mind that. You know? Or when people run off to the beaches at the weekend. Or people run up a, a hill. You know? Go for walks sit in parks, that's fine, that's fine, we can accept the break on those social distancing, but if people gather for a protest, people gather like thousands did on Sunday for a very peaceful, very well organised protest, and everyone jumps straight on social media, it's the second wave, it's the fucking second wave, you should be ashamed of yourselves. You're murdering this country. Protect the NHS. What I love most about this is people who are posting things about the uh, protests that are happening across the UK and even in America. And they're giving it the fucking, the big licks about social distancing and about the second wave and about how people who clap for the NHS are out there protesting when they're causing more damage to the country. These are the same people who I find, and I'm generalising here, who I find sneak off to the mum and dad's house at the weekend to go and sit in the Moz fucking hot tub and drink £5 bottle of Prosecco's at the co-op. Who have a wee sneaky cuddle with loved ones, you know, when they shouldn't. Who invite friends around to sit in the garden and then eventually after a few cans of beer a couple of bottles of wine fuck it he's edged together eh? nobody's seen you man I know we're no social distance now doesn't it matter but because we're pals because I know you I know you I know you've not got the virus I know that I know you've not been to China I know you fucking hate them as much as I do I know that because we're all mad we racist together I know that it's fine you know we'll not tell anybody it's cool because it doesn't matter to us but we'll wait until somebody posts pictures of a protest and then we'll fucking jump on board. The second wave. That protest I went to 
you know what? As I'm as I'm speaking here, I'm remembering why I changed the microphone over because this thing is a fucking bag of nails. The protest that I went to on Sunday, sorry, um, it is the most peaceful and most middle class thing I've ever been in my life, but it felt it felt good to be part of it. Um, it felt strange a couple of points, and I'll uh, I'll talk about that now. I um, what I realised on Sunday at the Black Lives Matter movement protest in Hollywood Park was that it will take more than global racism and injustice of a group of people in order for me to like poetry. It's never going to happen. I fully support the movement. I, myself, have made, you know, trying to make changes, will make the changes that are required. But there is no way in hell I'm ever going to say that poetry serves a place or purpose in a modern world because of Disney. It was a, it was a good day, man. It was well organised, I've got to say. They had a lot of volunteers there. Um, people were handing out face masks if you didn't have a mask. People were handing out gloves if you wanted gloves. People were constantly encouraged to space themselves out. And I know that some of the pictures that have gone up, um, people were saying that there was no social distancing. Uh, I think there was a few people, or quite a, quite a few people, who may have been within the two metres. But I can assure you where we were, and the vast majority of people that we could see, there was enough space between everyone that you could freely move in and out of the crowd. There was various um, volunteers, like I said, who were constantly walking in and out of the crowd. Um, a lot of media were there, a lot of press were there, and again, no hassle, no problem. They were moving freely within the crowd because everyone was spaced enough that you could move in and out of groups. So I think that it, is, it was as, as, as socially distant as it could have been. And it lasted two hours, just under two hours, about an hour and a half worth of speakers. And then the last half hour that was set aside by the people organising the event was, in their words, to disperse the crowd safely. And that's exactly what they did. They had volunteers, like I said, in high-vis jackets, standing at certain points. And they asked people who were behind the volunteers to move away first. And they moved the crowd away in stages. And, and everyone did as they were asked, no one that, that I saw was, was uh, being defiant or hanging about, there was no problem, there was a few police there um, who were moving in and out of the crowds, and it was uh, very well organised, very well respected, very well turned out, although if I'm being honest I thought there was going to be more people there than there was, and I will say one thing about the social distancing, and then, and then I'm going to leave it right, because I'm, I'm boring myself here as well, like I said, we got there quite early. It, we got there before it all started, right? And we just we just messed the times up. I wasn't really sure when we should get there. I wasn't sure something was happening. I actually thought we were going to march after it. I thought we were going to go to Royal Mile to the castle, fucking kick the door in, man, fire the cannon. But whenever, it was very, very calm, respectful. But the amount of people 
who were on Arthur's seat in Holyrood Park, who had no idea the protest was happening, was insane. Insane. When we first got there, the volume of people who were going up that hill was incredible. It was like any other weekend outside of lockdown. The number of people walking up that hill. And what I'm getting is, we're always going to disagree on this idea of social distancing or the thing about a second wave, right? I don't think a second wave is going to come. I don't buy it. I just don't believe it anymore. People need to be, you cannot be selective on when you want to enforce social distancing. You either do or you don't. You don't get to hold a higher ground and claim that these protesters are putting lives in danger because they're out protesting when you yourself walk around a supermarket without keeping social distancing, sneak off to family members, go for walks with large groups of people. You don't get to pick and choose. The interesting thing about the news about the second wave is constantly being pushed by the BBC and by the Tories. No one ever seems to be questioning that we have got the highest death rate in Europe. That never seems to be discussed. Highest death rate in Europe. Britain. And England. It's England. The four home nations. Scotland has the lowest death rate. England the highest. And Britain, within Europe, highest death rate in Europe. But that's not discussed. All that's discussed is... Nobody's social distancing and the second wave's coming. These things the now that are in the media. Madeline fucking McCann. It's all meant to distract you. It's a distraction from what's happening. The day Madeline McCann's story came in the papers was the, the day after the first protests in London. And the papers in this country lead with another fucking story about Madeline fucking McCann. It is a distraction. You can say that it's a horrible thing for me to say. You can say I'm heartless. You can say that I'm, you know, I'm dead inside. I could not give a fuck about Madeline McCann. They, 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 those people, her parents, they have had their time. They have milked that for everything it's worth. They've made their money and they can fuck off in the sea. Because I'll, I'll say this much. When that story first broke, right, if that had been a pair of scumbags, you know, for Glasgow, for a, for a council estate, you know, in Glasgow, and one of their kids had been abducted, or, I mean, they fucking murdered her. If, if one of their kids had been abducted on holiday, you know, as they sat apparently having dinner, as it was left alone in the room, they'd be in the jail. They would be in the jail. And that's a fact. And this country, and the media in this country, would have hounded them as being monsters. But because these two were middle-class doctors who could fucking talk the talk, everybody fell in love with them. And fit in their heart, and the, the, it poured it. I'm done with it, man. I'm done with it. Can't be asked for the pair of them. I don't know what happened to that wee lassie. They know what happened to her. And you'll never hear the end of that. But those kind of stories are distractions. 
the media is trying to distract you from what's actually happening. And what's actually happening is the world's on fucking fire. Let me tell you that much. The world's on fire. Before I move on to some other bits and pieces, one last thing I'll, I'll say briefly about certainly Scotland's history and our history with regards to the slave trade or, or in general with regards to part of parts of history we would maybe rather forget. Um, I do think it's important that we are educated on these things. I really do. Um. I don't think, also, and I'll say this, and again, this could be the wrong thing, but I'm I'm not here to, I'm not here to censor myself, I'm not here to, I'm not here to question my, my thoughts at this point. I will say things that are wrong, I may say things that upset people, um, if it is shown to me to, to be, you know, in the wrong, then I'll, I'll, I'll apologise, and, and we will move forward. And I think that's something to, to take on board just now as well. I think a lot of people maybe are they're, they're unsure about saying things. They're unsure about speaking up in case they are shot down or in case they are remarked badly. I am. I I don't have any shame of this country's past. Okay, there are there are some people who, when they talk about the part that Scotland, the UK, played in the slave trade, they they seem to embody this this shame of of their past and their history. I cannot believe we did these things. Get over yourself, man. Right? It's not about you. We did a fucking a lot of horrible, horrible stuff, but we moved past it, and we become better people. And we become more educated. And we don't let it happen again. But we also acknowledge that these things went on. These things exist. And the country that we live in played a massive part in it. I am not saying that we have to draw a line under it. Pretend the past didn't happen. But things like to go back to Colston again. I don't think there's any reason why... People like him, statues like that, shouldn't be, what am I trying to say, moved or at least put across in a way so that you know what it is, okay? Whether that be a plaque, whether that be information, whatever, so that you know when you are standing in front of a statue, it does not read, they're the city's favourite son, it tells you this man was a slave trader. You know, if if there are people who are adamant that these things remain, then I think we are a bit more open with the past. And and, and one of the things that I've seen, I'm sure most of you have seen it as well, it's a it's a it's a, a an image that was going on Instagram, and it was talking about the names of streets in Glasgow. And you may have seen some people had given uh, alternative names to these streets in Glasgow, and they. And they posted up street signs underneath it again i don't have a pro i generally don't have a problem and I, I don't think it's not that i don't care about the subject or that i don't care about 
the history. But for example, if there was a like any one of these streets that I'm just about to read, if they have ties to someone who is involved in the slave trade or a part of history that is embarrassing for want of a better word, I don't have a problem with the name being changed at all. At all. And I think that if you do have a problem with it, you maybe need to ask yourself why? Why do we have such emphasis on certain things that are in the past? And it's this idea that people push the the the, the, the topic of we're going to lose our identity and our history. You're not. Because you're not, for a start, willing to accept all parts of your history. Good and bad. None of us are perfect. None of us. None of us are slave traders. I mean, I would fucking hope no. But none of us are perfect. You know? These these are the, the streets. And again, sad to admit, I had no idea that some of these were even named after people. No idea. I'd, you don't know how things are named. Hey, why, is, why is the grass called grass? I don't know, son. I don't know why these streets are called this. But very famous streets. If you're from Glasgow, you'll know them. Maybe if you've been to Glasgow, you know them. Buchanan Street, right? I thought maybe it was uh, Stevie Buchanan, you know, uh, for, for Heart Attack, Neil Buchanan, that was named after him. No, it's uh, named for Tobacco Lord Andrew Buchanan, for uh, uh, a tobacco lord, you know. I can't imagine it. Uh, he was had his workers on a 36-hour contract, eh? 28 days paid holiday a year, plus bank holidays, eh? Plus six pay after six months. I don't think so. Uh, Ingram Street. Named for Archibald Ingram, Ingram, plantation owner. Dirty bastard, rip it down! Never knew that. Where was his fucking plantation? Govan? Archibald Ingram. Ingram Street, named out because he was a plantation owner. What? I mean, I know I'm, I know again, I'm I'm talking into the abyss here, right? And, you're, and I hope you're listening and maybe you're answering along. Why is this not part of our education in schools? Why do we not know that one of the most famous streets in Glasgow, Ingram Street, is named after a man who was a plantation owner? Why is that not part of our education? Dunlop Street, named for the Dunlop family of plantation owners. More plantation owners! How many plantations were there? Glassford Street, named for tobacco lord John Glassford. Uh, Wilson Street, named for tobacco lord James Wilson. Cochrane Street, named for Tobacco Lord. We fucking love tobacco, man. We fucking... I tell you, two things we love in Glasgow, man. A good fag and a fucking slave trade. Oswald Street, named for Richard Oswald, slave trading fort owner. Jamaica Street, Virginia Street, Antigua Street and the Kingston Bridge all trace their names to locations of plantations which own slaves. There you go. Again, why is this no part of education in this country? Why are we not aware of it? You know, why why don't we discuss these things more? Glasgow is Glasgow's a different a different place, man. I honestly believe that Glasgow is, is unique. It is like it is unlike anywhere else in this world. And I know that there will be Horrible people in the city. I know there will be people in the city who have experienced extreme racism in that city. But I think if there is a place for change that you can start in Scotland, I think Glasgow would be the place to do it, man. 
if we're going to look at street names, re-education, I think Glasgow are a good place to start. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But I think it could be a good place to start. I watched a documentary last week, um, which I will now very quickly search um, because I want to get the name of it for you. Um, in fact, I think it may have even been called Felix, which I think was the name of the uh, is the name of the restaurant. I'm I'm so, sorry, guys. I'm not I'm not doing this very well, am I? Um, this is what happens when you try and talk and search on a fucking shitty computer at the same time. Um, right, the documentary is called Funky. Hey, funky. F-U-N-K-E. Funky. And it is about a chef. Um, and the chef... Uh, the chef named... <laughs> God... Uh, Evan Funky is the guy's name. Evan, is it Evan Funky? Evan Funky is the name of the chef. Now, this guy is brilliant. Um, you can get this uh, the documentary called Funky. It's on Amazon Prime. Um, if any of you've got Amazon Prime, you can get it on there. Just search Funky. F U N K E. The guy is. He, he's basically trying to become the greatest pasta chef in America, right? No, he is American. Um, fair bit of money. Fairness in Hollywood, uh, involved in movies. Um, so, you know, part of me's thinking he's not really had that struggle. And I enjoy a good documentary where the, the man or woman has had to fight their way up to the, the heat of the pasta game. So... You know, he's not he's not had much of a struggle in life. But put that aside, great wee documentary. If you if you like me, if you love food, if you love anything about cooking, give it a watch. Now, it takes you through the story of his kind of cooking career and where he is currently, where he's trying to open up a restaurant, and the restaurant is called Felix, right? Um and it's um it's a pasta restaurant and Basically, what he's trying to do is become the best pasta chef in America, as I said. And what it does is it, it takes you through. It takes you through the story of handmade pasta. It takes you through his training in, in Bologna, Bologna, and it is so fascinating. I absolutely loved it. Right now, first off, off the bat, let me say this. Apparently, there's 350 different types of pasta, right? Now, I, I have no idea. Uh, the shells, the tubes, and the spaghetti. 350 different types of pasta, right? That is insane. Insane. And every single one of them will, will have a different name and a different purpose as well. So there will be types of pasta that are that are regional okay but there's also types of pasta that are designed specifically for a dish so for example the, the 
the uh, the the grooves or the indentation that's on it will be dependent on the sauce that it's in, how deep it sits within the grooves, if it's a light sauce. It's it is a whole world, a culinary world that I never knew exists. I, I've always known there's been different types of pasta, but I never knew it was to that level, 350. And... This guy makes handmade pasta, real handmade pasta, with the, with the hands. Now, here's the thing that shocked me. If you put pasta in a pasta machine, you know the machines that you've seen when you crank the handle and it feeds the pasta through? That's no handmade pasta. No. That's no handmade pasta. That's machined pasta. And when I heard that, I was like... Fucking mind blowing, funky mind blowing, you know. All these chefs on the telly, ah, oh, we're going to make handmade pasta. No, you're not, you can't. That's a fucking machine, you're cheating bastards. This is handmade, kneaded, mixed, rolled, all by hand. Takes obviously infinitely longer than it does to batter it through a machine, but according to funky. The taste is night and day. Now, I know I have never had fresh hand-rolled pasta. Never. I've had fresh pasta in a restaurant. It was lovely, but it was done to a machine. I know it was because it was an open restaurant and I could see them, right? So to have someone take the time and do it the way your nonna did, your granny, I imagine would be incredible, right? I find all this stuff fascinating. I love it. I love the history of it. I love everything that's attached to it. He he basically meets a chef when he's younger, when he's a young chef from Bologna, and he asks him to teach him the theory, the history, and the techniques of making hand roll pasta. And the guy says no. So he's just like, well, fuck you. I'm going to move to Bologna. And he moves to Bologna, and he finds this woman who is running a pasta school, and she teaches him how to make real hand-rolled Italian pasta. Now, as you go through it, the sad thing is that, that school has now closed because there they were just not enough people enrolling in the class, enrolling in the school, for it to be financially viable to keep it going. And that's a sad thing that in Italy, in Italy, the home of pasta, they cannot find enough young people and young chefs interested enough in restoring, maintaining and carrying forward the tradition and history of pasta making to know in that school. That's sad, man. That's sad. That's that's probably a, a reflection on the world that we're in just now. That is a sad state of affairs. The other thing that I found quite sad was when she's talking about the, the pupils that she's had through the school, she's saying that her two best ever students... Well, this guy, Funky, and another chef. Funky's American. The other chef is Japanese. Now, again, hey, Reverend is going in the world. Is that me being racist? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe somebody's explain that to me. Is that being racist? That I find that sad. That she's never been able to have an Italian come through her kitchen. And she thinks, this they've got it. The two people I've been most dedicated to it are an American and a Japanese chef. Now, is there another argument on that, in that our own history, our own 
past our own, you know, culinary side of what makes us who we are is not interesting to natives. Is is that the discussion? That there may be more people who are interested in Indian cuisine, Japanese cuisine, you know, French cuisine, because they grew up with Italian cuisine and to them it's not exotic, you know? If you apply that to other things, even in Scotland, is, is there a reason why we always look to London, we always look to America? Is it because the stuff that we grew up with, it's just, it's no cool, it's no trendy to us? I don't know. So, in the documentary, it talks about this thing, and I've written it down so I can try and say it properly. It's called uh, Mattarelli. 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 It's a big fuck off rolling pin, right? It is a rolling pin that is uh, milled to within, I believe, one-eighth of an inch accuracy. And this is the rolling pin that they use to roll out pasta dough to make pasta, right? And, and again, it might just be me, maybe there are other people as well that find it interesting, but to watch someone with that level of skill, I love that stuff. To take a, a ball of, of dough and then it took 25 minutes, right, to roll it so that you get this sheet of pasta that is paper thin yet fully retains it's texture and it and it's it's conditioned like it's not it's not flapping about it's not thin bits and thick bits completely uniformed and when he talks about transition away and where you have to press on the materelli in order to transfer the the point away in and that whenever you press down on a rolling pin of that size the force is actually two inches in from where your hands are even stuff like that I find interesting but just to watch them turn it and roll for 25 minutes just to get this sheet of pasta and then it takes you through all the different types of pasta the cutters how it's made fascinating absolutely fascinating um i can go back to the sadness he he has this materially this huge big rolling pin and when he was first in bologna when he was younger he got this guy to make it and, and that's all this man does Again, I love stuff like that, man. See, people who are solely driven on one thing. Th this guy, in, in, a, in a wood workshop, all he makes is these rolling pins. Now, the rolling pins maybe five feet long, right? Four and a half, five feet. So it's a, it's a big, it's a big bar of wood. But that's all this man makes. He doesn't make anything else. You know? Doesn't he make window frames, doors, he doesn't sit with all his wood and go, maybe I'll just knock out a bedside table, you know. The Mattarellis aren't selling that well this month. No, that's all he makes. From when he was a child, he watched his father, he learned the skills, he took the business on, and his full working life, five, six days a week, all he's done is make these Mattarellis. I love all that stuff, man. I find it so fascinating. That the now in modern times, in the world we're in, where people don't have careers anymore. No one sticks a job for any great length of time. And yet this man has dedicated his life 
to making something that is so niche before this documentary started i'd never even heard of it love it man amazing um and he goes back to the factory or the, the workshop with his mid-to-rally to meet the guy and the guy's passed away sadly but he meets his son and he, and he talks about it and even things like he hands it over to his to his uh his son and as soon as his son holds it he goes that was one of my dad's that, i mean even that is beautiful you know to to, to know that you're the craftsmanship is so strong in, in what you do that someone who knows you can pick up a piece of your work and instantly know that's from you. Amazing. So, starts this restaurant called Felix and um, in LA. And um, you you watch the 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 kind of creation of the of the restaurant if you like how it's built. They talk you through the different. Uh, ways in which they, they set it up people are are criticizing him because he has this uh, purpose-built um temperature controlled pasta room in the center of the restaurant so it's big glass fronted uh box that is temperature controlled and that's where they make the pasta the pasta lab and people are saying like you know they're losing so many chairs and they, they work out as something like over a million dollars a year that they could lose in revenue because the chairs have had to put up and he's like, I don't fucking care, man, this is what I want. And even things like the temperature of the air that the pasta is made in can affect the pasta. The temperature of the eggs can affect it. The, the freshness of the flour can affect the pasta. So if you have flour that has been milled you know, straight away, and it's made out of pasta. It will, it will have a different reaction to flour that has been milled and is maybe sitting in the bag for a few days. And there has to be adjustments in the recipe, in the in the liquid to dry, in order to make that pasta perfect every single time. What? I I love this stuff, man. When you actually start to take things. And strip it down to its its core, its base level. How intricate you can get with stuff. How many of you have just cracked open a, a packet of dry pasta? And yes, it's it's nice. Yes, it's delicious, you know. There's some amazing dry pastas out there. But to have someone with that level of skill and dedication and knowledge make you a bowl of pasta. I can only imagine it's the greatest pasta that you'll taste. Great wee documentary. I'm looking now at the uh, at the menu. And I tell you right now, man, it is making me fucking starving. But what have we got here? Uh, rigatoni. I know rigatoni. Sugo di porpadone. Basil. Parmigiano reggiano. Even just reading an Italian menu makes you hungry. Regatone arrabbiata. Pompadoro, pecarino, basil, pecarino romano, regatone al americana, guanciale, pomodoro, pecarino romano, papadelli, I don't really like papadelli, orogo bolognese. When, when I was watching one of these uh, cooking things, the guy's talking, so he's talking to this Italian. 
and uh, they're talking about what I think I believe Americans call red sauce, right? Which I suppose you would call it like a bolognese or a or a sugo, right? But obviously, an actual Italian is not going to call it that. But that's the kind of equivalent, right? Um, like an Italian gravy, they call it in America. So he's talking to this Italian chef, and he says, uh, "Oh, it's like uh, it's like gravy. It's like red sauce." And he's like, "Eh, he's like uh, red sauce, uh, the gravy." He's like, "Eh, he's like, it's a it's a sugo," and the guy's saying, "Yeah, like uh, you know, uh, an Italian American, we call it red sauce or like gravy." And he says, "Eh, what what is Italian American?" And he went, oh, like a, 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 "An Italian from America." And he went, "That's not a real thing." <laughs> like fucking hell, mate. That's not a real thing. <laughs> what is an Italian-American? It's an Italian that's born in America. That's not a real thing, mate. You're American then. <laughs> Again, different types of racism. You know what I mean? People trying to desperately hold on to any heritage they have. I am an Italian-American. And then Italians are like, you're an American, you cunt. That's not a real thing. Watch the documentary. Called Funky, F-U-N-K-E, on uh, Amazon Prime. It's also on Tastemade, which is on Disney Plus, if any's have got that. Um, but it's great, man. It's on for about an hour and a half. Great watch. If, if you're interested in food, um, or even craftsmanship to that level, watch it. It is an absolute belter. Okay, um... Let's let's start to wrap this one up, team. Another episode, man. Uh, episode 32. 32. 32. 32. I can't believe we got this far, man. 32 episodes. I believe um, over 40 hours worth of free content. You lucky devils. Um, listen, if you enjoy the podcast, a couple of ways you can support the show if you want to do so. Please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use to get your podcast. The Battlefield Show is available on every single podcast player. Um, but the big ones, Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, shows available on there. Also, video episodes go up on YouTube. Uh, please do head over to the YouTube channel and subscribe to that. You can access it through my website, scottgibsoncomedy.co.uk, and also join the mailing list. Now, if you want to go that one step further, and support the show, and support me with a little financial donation. You can do so through Patreon. Uh, consider joining the Battlefield Army and sign up to the Patreon page. Go to patreon.com forward slash Big Scott Gibson. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Big Scott Gibson for as little as $5 a month. What's $5? Fuck all. Eh? You would spend more on that than a pint, more on that than a coffee. So sign up to the Patreon right now. And for that, you will get eight podcast episodes a month, two a week, plus extra goodies, comedy albums, interviews, access to The Officer's Mess, which is the interview podcast that I do before anyone else. So sign up to the Patreon today. Right, let's do some listeners' questions. Um, as always, thank you to everyone who got in touch. Um, on Facebook, I am Scott Gibson Comedy. Instagram and Twitter is at Big Scott Gibson. Right, let's go to Facebook. 
Morris Stewart. Hello, Morris. Uh, Morris has asked, I just got any fancy coffee after listening to you. Welcome to the club, Morris. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. For the Patreons on the Battlefield Army, I've got a few ideas of things that I'm going to do over the kind of coming months once we get back to some kind of normality for uh, little little thank yous, little merch ideas for the Patreonies. And uh, hey, we need some Battlefield coffee, man. That's what we need. We need our own blend, our own brew. Um, let me know what you got, Morris. Did you go V60, Hario? Have you gone Aeropress? Have you gone Espresso? I really want to get a siphon. That's the next thing. Siphon machine looks cool as fuck. A wee French press. Nothing a wee French press. Uh, right, Morris says, what do you do with the wee bits of coffee from the end of the packet that aren't enough to make a full brew? <laughs> Good question, mate. Good question. Now, if you had a grinder and you could grind your own beans, then you may not have that issue. But certainly with the pre-ground bag of coffee, which is still an excellent way to get good coffee um what i tend to do is when i'm getting to the bottom of the pack i will what i basically do is in the packet um, if i realize i'm getting near the bottom i will scoop out a few measures and like so i have a, a different mug that i use to or it's a kind of a small uh it's actually like a, a it's like a little uh, chinese tea cup that i use to measure coffee and to weigh the coffee so i'll maybe put a few measures in there um, to give me an idea of what i've got left um and then i'll put it back into the bag and that will probably give me an idea of right i've got enough in there for maybe two or three more servings if i'm using the v60 or if i'm using an aeropress i will know how much i've got and if i have a little bit less then i'll maybe just make make it in a french press and then i can just fire some more in there um, the other thing you can do is if you've got um, a few grounds of coffee together, then you can always, uh, you know, keep them in like a sealed container. And then when you've got another bag, you can use that to top off and mix it in if you, if you don't mind mixing the coffees. But what I tend to do is when I get near the bottom of the bag, I will maybe use the kind of last bit to have a bigger French press or, or something like that. And then that way I can use up more of the grounds at a time. You know, thanks for asking, Morris. Um, and see if you like coffee. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. I still, you know, I'm still drinking instant, right? During the day, when I'm working, I still have an instant coffee. But if you want to have a good coffee, like a nice coffee, uh, and you enjoy coffee, get yourself a V60. They're fucking brilliant, right? But a company called Hario, H-A-I-R-O. Get on Amazon. You can get the V60 dripper and the wee pot that you use to cash the coffee in and the filters. You can get the whole thing in one wee packet for maybe 28 quid, 30 quid at the most. Um, and that's the pour-over coffee style. And it's uh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Get it. I love it. I got an Aeropress. I'm not that impressed with my Aeropress. But I'll persevere with it, and there's a few techniques that I've seen online. Uh, inverted brewing. Um, basically, an aeropress is it has it's a it's a hollow chamber, and there's a kind of suction pad that forces compressed air through the chamber, forcing the coffee at the bottom. Um, and I've seen this technique called inverted press, where you put the the plunger in to create a seal. 
and then turn it on its head and take the uh, the kind of nozzle where the coffee's uh, forced through off, feed the coffee in, fill it up, and then wait till it brews before you invert it and press it through. So maybe that'll give me a stronger brew. I don't know, but I will. I will be trying different things now, and eventually we're gonna get that sage espresso machine that I want. But it's fucking. It's a grand man, and I'm gonna be honest with you. Can I justify spending that? I'm gonna say, can I justify spending that money in a coffee machine? We've not got that money. We're fucking skint, eh? I love it when my bank gets in touch to say, hey, just so you know, fatty, you're still in your overdraft. I know. So. Uh, thanks, Morris, for that. Uh, good luck, big man. Let us know how you're getting on. And like I said, uh, if you've not got a V60, mate, get yourself a V60. You sure got a V60. You deserve it. Right, Instagram, um, Stephen Harry Wilson, the legend. If you could pick anyone to interview on The Officer's Mess, who would it be? If you don't know, The Officer's Mess is uh, an interview podcast that I've started. Um, I'm going to do six in an episode. We There are three episodes out just now. All of them are on Patreon. Um, so far I've interviewed Gary Little, uh, Jeannie Jones and Zach Zucker and I will be continuing on with them indefinitely um, what I would like to do with them is do live versions uh, that's the plan hopefully and next year at the Fringe Festival I was going to do it this year but obviously the Fringe is cancelled so next year at the Fringe Festival I would like to do a, a live podcast with that where I interview other comics and interesting people and uh, those interviews will come out um, to the Patreonis and the, uh, the the greater good, the freeloaders, at some point. Um, but that interview is called The Officer's Mess. Who would I like to interview? Um, quite a few people. A couple of people had mentioned Tom Stade to me. Oh, I, I am in the process of getting a date together with the commander and I would sit down with him. Obviously, number one would be Billy Conley. Um, he's my hero. He is uh, the patron saint of comedy. If I if I could sit down and 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 talk to him about comedy and, and about life, that would be a dream come true. He would be the first one. But I, I also think about a time when I was very, very lucky. A few Edinburgh fringes ago, I got to do a, a, a show at a festival that used to run called Fringe by the Sea. And this ran for a few years, and I think it's still running in some form. I think new people have taken over. And long story short, I was asked to come down and MC the comedy tent. Um, and it was quite a well-to-do crowd. I was told before it, you know, don't be swearing and da da and all that fucking nonsense. And I always find that when people tell me not to swear, it's through fear of their own. And then when you get out to the audience, they're totally fine. And that was the case. Um, they were very posh, very middle-class but you cannot ignore the Glasgow charm. I made a lovely night. Um, but I was um, on the bill with some older comics and uh, a lady came over uh, after the gig and uh, came down and, and sat at the table with us when we were out the back in the kind of green room area. And the woman was Ronnie Corbett's widow, uh, Anne Corbett. And she sat and just told us stories about Ronnie and stories about London in, in the 60s and 70s and some stories for television. And it was honestly one of the best experiences 
and the best nights that I've that I've ever had. It was just such a it was such a, a pleasure to be able to sit there and, and and listen to listen to her tell those stories. It really was. I think there are a lot of people who are are no longer considered fashionable or cool but were around comedy or around the industry or around entertainment or television back in the maybe 70s, 80s, 90s, which I imagine would be fascinating people to speak to. Fascinating people to speak to. Um, so th- there are a few um, who I'd like to talk to. Scottish-wise, comedy. I'll, hopefully we'll sit down with Fred McCall at some point and a lot of people um, will know nothing of Fred's comedy and... And again, he was one of the first to, to really go forward. A lot of people don't know about Fred. He was in, back in the day, man, Fred was one of the greatest comics in the country. He was the first Scottish comedian to be a resident MC at the Comedy Store in London. And if you know anything about how fucked up this current industry is towards acts outside of London, that's an incredible achievement, man. And people like Fred, people like Bruce Morton, Again, pioneers for Scottish comedy, modern Scottish stand-up. Parrot, I'd love to sit down with Parrot. And these are names who you possibly might not know or might think off the top of your head. Why would you be interested? But there's, there's history there. There's stories there. These are people who have been at the birth of modern stand-up and, and, and are still going, you know. And, and I think it's important to... Again, to tie this all back nicely, I think it's important to understand the people who went before you, understand the history of the environment that you're in, and understand what people have done to enable you to have the space to perform that you're in. So that's what I would love to do with the show. Um, So we've got a few of them lined up. And if there's anybody who you would like me to speak to, if there's anyone who you know of interest... Um, then give me their names Um, I'm very interested to talk to people who are not comics as well Um, maybe try and get a few chefs in there, that would be nice eh? there you go Stevie boy, thank you for your question Right, um, there we go, I'll I'll answer some more of these I know that we have got a few so I'll answer some more of these on the uh, Patreon episode that will be coming out um, this week on Friday Right, um, guys, that's it. Let's wrap this one up. Um, episode 32 in the bag. Thank you very much indeed again for listening. Um, please do subscribe to the show. Share it on your social medias. Let's try and go the Battlefield Army. And those of you out there who want to support the show and get access to the Officer's Mess interviews that we spoke about and access to all of the previous Patreon episodes that have dropped and get those that come out every single Friday, then please do consider becoming a patron today in fact you know what don't even consider it anymore just fucking get on there right head to patreon.com forward slash big scott gibson all links on the website sign up for as little as five dollars sit back put your feet up listen to the fucking goodies that will drop into your inbox on a weekly basis and then feel smug and feel good because you are keeping a struggling artist afloat in these difficult times all right look after yourself Stay safe, look out for fake news, educate yourself, be kind, wash your hands and your arsehole, and I'll hopefully see you in a battlefield soon. Take care of yourself, team. Onwards.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.